Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The epistle to the Ephesians and chapter 3. We want to read together verses 14 through 21, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then our text for this morning, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me ask that we pray once again together. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come before Your Word now, uh, we recognize, Lord, that we come uh, to a God who is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And we come before your word now to consider these words of the Apostle Paul. We pray that you would uh, knit them to our hearts and that you would help by your spirit uh, us to apply these words to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There are certain things, certain practices, certain disciplines uh, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, since its inception, uh, has been practicing, has been observing since the very beginning. There are certain practices that the church from age to age throughout time uh, has observed. Uh, Some of these things include gathering together on the first day of the week to worship God. Uh, Usually that would involve the preaching of God's word. It would involve the observance of the sacraments. Quite often songs would be sung. And usually when God's people would gather for worship, they would pray together. Prayer was part of Uh, many of the services of the early church, and it has been so throughout time, throughout the church from age to age. But beyond that, uh, the church throughout the last 2,000 years has traditionally gathered, oftentimes midweek or in the evening, for special services of prayer. In fact, we can see as early as the book of Acts, uh, one of the disciplines of the early church was to gather together in homes, uh, oftentimes in the evening, and they would pray with one another. They would gather together and and pray to God to do the very things that Paul uh, prays for in Ephesians chapter 3. And so many of you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, uh, it is more and more a priority for us as a church to commit to the glorious habit, the glorious discipline of corporate prayer. And I want my message this morning to fuel us in our efforts as it is our, our endeavor to gather together regularly as a church to pray to God. One of the things we do as part of our gathered services on Sunday mornings, we have a a prayer of confession. Um, And also, in the middle of the service, sometimes, like this morning, we'll say a congregational prayer together. Then a pastoral prayer will be offered. We want to make prayer a significant part of our services because we recognize that one of the things God wants in His house is that His house would be a house of prayer. 
We also have sought to emphasize in our, our small groups that gather midweek, uh, we've encouraged all the small group leaders that whatever you do, whatever is accomplished in that time, let us make sure that as we gather, we're making our requests known and we're praying for one another and we're seeking God together with one another because prayer has to be a priority of the church. Well, to further this endeavor, we intend to gather for now once a month as a gathered congregation, not in small groups, but as an entire congregation on the first Sunday of every month to seek the Lord in prayer together. And that is not without very good reason. If you were here last week, uh, we considered uh, the supernatural nature of the church. Uh, In the introduction to the sermon, I I talked about how the church is supernatural in its origins. That if we go to the early chapters of the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit came in powerful ways, moved among the apostles, and then through the preaching of the word, 3,000 souls were added on the first day that the church met. And we saw that God moved powerfully, supernaturally in the very origins of the church itself. We saw, secondly, that the church is also supernatural in its formation. Uh, That the church is this supernatural entity made up of Jews and Gentiles and people from various cultures and various backgrounds. And they gather together as one body, a new humanity in Christ. And whatever might be true of our backgrounds or interests of our hobbies in Christ, we're said to be made one through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Through what Christ supernaturally accomplished, a church is formed. And they're made one in a supernatural way. And then we saw, thirdly, that the church is supernatural in its function and in its ministry. The church is called to be the embassy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is called to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus and to see actual spirit transformation among lost men and women. And the church has been seeing that sort of fruit, and churches are built upon that fruit. But that's not the sum total of what the church's mission is. We saw, actually in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, there's there's something profoundly spiritual going on when the church gathers together, when the church exists as this new humanity in Christ Jesus. Apparently, Paul uh, believed that the church as this supernatural entity was was supposed to be communicating something about the manifold wisdom of God, not only to the nations, but to the spirits and the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. That apparently, uh, the church, this supernatural entity, this new humanity in Christ Jesus, is being watched, it's being observed by spirit powers, by angels and by demons and by spiritual forces of darkness and by Satan himself, such that when the church even just exists as this supernatural entity, dwelling in supernatural unity, dwelling in supernatural love, is a testimony to the manifold wisdom of God, to the spirit powers in the heavenly places. Church far more glorious than we tend to think. It's not merely about men and women being saved and being incorporated into the life of the church, even though that's such a large part of our ministry. There's also spiritual forces that watch the church. And we, as the church, are to demonstrate, are to manifest the manifold wisdom of God and His plan of redemption and informing the church to be a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And then the bulk of our time last week was spent on this prayer from the Apostle Paul in verses 14 through 19. The argument I sought to make was that the church, as this supernatural entity, called to do all these various things, called to be all these various things, is supernaturally sustained. Uh, What is it that makes the church what it is? This, This 
force, this movement in the world that has incorporated men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Uh, this, this force that has ably met every challenge that has not only survived but thrived in the face of opposition and persecution and has found receptivity in thousands of cultures across the world and has only grown from strength to strength, has only grown in power. What has caused that to be? And I sought to argue that there is no social explanation we could offer. There's no political explanation that we could offer. There's no psychological explanation that we can offer. But there is a supernatural explanation that we could offer. Mm -hmm. And that is that God has been coming in power to his people. He's been strengthening them in their inner being. He's been filling them with the Holy Spirit such that we see the demonstration of the Spirit and power in the midst of Christ's church. Well, now this morning we come to the final words of the prayer the doxology in the prayer, and it's recorded for us in verses 20 through 21. And Paul's purpose in this doxology, I believe, is to point the Ephesians uh, to the resources that are available in God. This God who supplies power to his people, he is more than able to give us all that we need in order to be and do all that Christ calls us to be and do. Please read with me again, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There's two points I want to share with you this morning. Two points I want us to see. First of all, we'll observe the power of God. The power of God. And that's primarily contained in verse 20. And then secondly, we'll consider the glory of God. The power of God. And then the glory of God. First of all, notice with me the power of God. Verse 20, now to him who is able, could be translated, him who is powerful, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Three things I want you to see here under the power of God. First of all, let's notice together God's superabundant ability. God's superabundant ability. Ability. Some of you wonder why I put such funny words in my outlines, why I describe things the way I do. Uh, there's a reason why we're using that term superabundant, God's superabundant ability that I'll explain in a moment. Our God, uh, we see in Ephesians 3.20, is the God who is able. Power is not an issue for God. The ability to deliver is not an issue for God. God is the God who is able. Our God is the God of power. Our God is the God of hope. Power, the ability to deliver, the ability to move, the ability to work things is not a problem for our God. We say in theology that our God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. Kids, do you know what the word omnipotent means? You know that word here is use that word, okay? Let's break it down. Uh, it's made up of two Latin words. Uh, the words are basically omni and potent. What do those words mean? Well, omni means, means like all or every, okay? And, and potent has the idea of power. So when we say, put those two words together, that God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing he can't do. He's strong. He's able. He's powerful. He's mighty. And some of you kids who were at our, our VBS just a few months ago, you might remember the song, right? What are we saying at VBS? My God is, is so big. He's so strong. 
He's so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, right? That's the title of the message today. There's nothing my God cannot do. He's so big. He's so strong. He's so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Well, that's what adults mean. That's what preachers mean when they say that God is omnipotent. Every time you hear that word, I want you to think of the song. God is so big. He's so strong. He's so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. Now think of these Ephesians. We've talked many times about uh, how this church was formed, that it was first made up of a, a small band of Jewish disciples, and then God moves in power in the region of Ephesus among the Gentiles to see many people from various groups represented there converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, many, many Gentiles from among the Ephesians. And we saw that some of those people were uh, idol worshippers. Some of those people were possibly temple prostitutes. Many of those people were caught up in black magic and the occult and dark arts and all these sorts of things. And those were the sorts of people who were converted in those early days of the Ephesian church. Uh, one of the, um, the gods that was so prominent in the Ephesian region was Artemis. Who, If I think I have my, my Roman uh, mythology right, it was like, the daughter of Zeus and the sister of Apollos, and she was the goddess of the hunt. That was her department. Okay? So these Ephesians, who, who were not what we would call monotheistic, they didn't believe in just one god, they believed in many gods. Each god had their sort of department. And Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. And so maybe we have some hunters in our midst this morning. Well, if you were a hunter in Ephesus, and you got up really early in the morning with your, your 22 or whatever, and you were going to hunt, you would pray to Artemis. And you'd say, help, help me to, to kill a deer or something like that, you know? If you were fishing, sorry, she can't help you. But if it was the hunt, you know, Artemis was your god. Every god had their department. Well, listen, God, god is over all the departments, our god. And, and Paul is having to teach the Ephesians that, that this is what, what it means to have this one God who is all-powerful. He's over everything. There's no limits to what he can do. Never does God say when we come to him with prayer requests, well, no, that's not really my department. That's not what I'm over. That's not my particular um, uh, uh, jurisdiction. You've got to go to someone else for that. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's over every department. And he can address every need. He can address every prayer. Uh, God is over all. Now the language in our text, that language, superabundant ability, where am I getting that? Well, if you have the uh, English Standard Version or, or maybe the NASB, you might see that language that, that God is able to do far more abundantly. If you have the NIV, it's, it's translated immeasurably more. If you have the New King James, it reads exceedingly abundantly above. What are these translations getting at? From what I understand, uh, when Paul uses this word in our text, he actually invents his own word. Um, you know what abundance is, right? It's kind of like spilling over. There's, there's, there's more than what's needed, right? Well, he uses like really, really abundant, abundant, abundance is kind of the word he uses. And so that's why I'm using that term, superabundance. That's probably the most accurate translation we could use here. Listen, you will never exhaust the abundance that's found in God. That's essentially the point that Paul is making. It's, it's not like he runs out of ability. He runs out of strength. Or he directs you to aisle 22 for that particular request. He has super abundant power and ability. And so I want to encourage you, uh, brothers and sisters, this morning. Uh, we often pray to the Lord. We make known to him our requests. 
God does not always answer our prayers, and often he doesn't answer our prayers in the way we think. And um, you should never conclude, though, if, if you've prayed to the Lord, you've sought his face, you've brought a request continually before him, maybe it's not been answered. You should never conclude that the reason it's not been answered is because God is not powerful enough to answer that request. The scriptures will not allow us to ever think that. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And so we should never conclude, the reason I don't have this thing that I want, or the reason this, this prayer has not been answered, it must be that God's arm is not strong to actually deliver. The Bible will not allow us to conclude that. It's, it's just a fact of the Christian life. In the profound and mysterious will of God, sometimes our prayers do go unanswered. And sometimes it confounds us. And very often we have to submit to the will of God and say his ways are above my ways. My thoughts are not his thoughts. This appears mysterious to me, maybe even impractical to me, but I'm going to bow to the will of God. That's the Christian posture. But it can never be that we can't conclude that we don't have because God is not powerful to deliver. God is all powerful, able to answer any request, able to meet any need. But I want you to notice that the text says that he is able he is able. It doesn't say that he's always willing. A lot of people apply Ephesians 3.20 incorrectly. God's able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think. Pray for Mercedes Benz and you'll get it. Right? But it says he's able. And as a matter of fact, God is able to give you a Mercedes Benz. He may not be willing. I'm sorry. But he's able. God is able to do anything. God is able to intervene in the midst of impossible odds. God is able to accomplish the unthinkable. Not always willing, but he is able. And that ought to cause us to come again and again, to pray big prayers and to seek the Lord because he is able to answer our prayers, to meet our needs. We should have the sense that when we're in the presence of God, We are in the presence of someone who can do something about our life and about our situation. When you bow before the Lord in your quiet time or we gather as a church and we pray to God, you're in the presence of someone who could do something about your life and about your situation. So you can imagine a scenario, right, where uh, you have, let's say, a mother trying to communicate the gospel to her kids. She's praying over them and she's communicating the truth to them. They don't see the get it. They don't seem to grasp it. And she's pleading with them and she's trying to get through to them. And I don't know, it's just not, it's not clicking with them. And she starts talking to her husband about it. You know, I talked to little Johnny and I was trying to get through to him and I, I don't know. And you might talk for a couple of hours about how better to communicate the gospel to your child. Well, you ought to have those conversations, parents. Uh, you ought to have those conversations. Nothing inappropriate or wrong about that. But if you're talking to your spouse about how to see your child saved by the grace of God, you are not in the presence of someone who can do something about it. Certainly helpful to talk. And God may work through your spouse to give you wisdom, but they can't actually change the heart. But you can have the awareness that when you're in the presence of God, when you're praying to Him, when you're on your knees before Him, you're in the presence of someone who can do something about it. You have a relationship, you're trying to break through, you're trying to you know, communicate Christ, you're trying to love somebody, and it just seems like you're failing and it's not working out. Go to, the, go to God. And you should recognize God is the one who could win in this relationship. God's the one who can make a difference in this relationship. God's the one who can turn the heart. I can't do that. My pastor can't do that. My Sunday school teacher can't do that. My spouse can't do that. But when you're in the presence of God, 
You're in the presence of one who can handle your life and your situation and your burdens. So first we've seen under the power of God, God's superabundant ability. Now I want to contrast that with what I'm calling man's small expectations. God's superabundant ability. And now secondly, man's small expectations. Please look again at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Let's stop there again. On the one hand, you have all that God can do. And kids, we know, right, from the song, there's nothing my God cannot do. There's all that God can do, his super abundant ability. And then there's those things that we ask and think. Here's what God is able to do. Here's what we ask or think. The idea in our text is that one of these things is greater than the other. One of these things, God is able to do more than we could even ask, more than we could even think. And I can't help but see in our text this idea that man's expectations are oftentimes so small. We set the bar so low for God. We throw him softies. We expect, well, this is something I could expect realistically that he'll do. And we just pray small prayer requests. Our prayers can often be so lacking in faith that God can actually work, that God can actually deliver. They can be so small, so insignificant. Our expectations for God can be so low. I'm reminded of a couple anecdotes from the life of Charles Spurgeon. One, I just have to share because we're looking at Ephesians 3.20, not particularly relevant. But Charles Spurgeon, you know, his, his mother had prayed over him for years and years, and he's finally converted when he's about 15 years old. And uh, shortly thereafter, he becomes a Baptist. Parents were Presbyterians, actually Congregationalists is the, the term in those days. And um, he writes a letter. He's telling his mom that he's converted. And uh, she says, Charles, I'm so happy. I, I always prayed uh, that God would make you a Christian. I never prayed, though, that he would make you a Baptist. And, of course, Spurgeon then replies, Well, Mother, God has answered with his usual bounty, and he's done above all that you could ask or think. That has nothing to do with this message. But the second anecdote does, okay? Small expectations, right? Spurgeon is counseling one of the men from his pastor's college, a young man in the ministry. And this man had been doing some street preaching. He had been seeking to disciple various individuals and was seeing almost no fruit to his labors. He comes to to C.H. Spurgeon. He says, you know, I'm I'm preaching. I'm I'm seeking to communicate the word of God. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm trying to evangelize these these young people in my, my life. And I'm just not seeing any fruit. I'm just discouraged. I'm not seeing any fruit from my ministry. And Spurgeon said to him, well, 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 brother, do you expect to see converts whenever you preach? He says, oh, well, no, of course not. He said, well, there's your problem. Do you have any faith that God will work through your ministry? Do you actually expect that he can do the thing? Or are you ministering in some sort of faithless way with low expectations for what God will accomplish? Our God is the God who is able And we should not be afraid to set the bar high, to set our expectations high, because he can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so often, God does answer prayer in accordance with the faith of the prayer that is offered. I'm reminded in my own experience um, at Grace Reformed Baptist Church, the church that planted this church, used to preach there sometimes on Sunday nights. And their pattern there, they have sort of a room behind... um, the platform where, where, where the service is conducted. Usually before the service, the pastors gather back there and they pray with one another. 
And this particular Sunday I was preaching. There's another pastor who's supposed to lead the service. One is supposed to pray. And there we are back in the room. And I had prepared my notes. I had prayed. I, I thought that I was uh, doing all that, that I should be doing. And it's just time, time to preach. Okay, 5.30 is, is coming. We gathered back there and we're praying. And I recognized very quickly how low my expectations are for what was going to happen that evening. Because, because these other men started praying that souls would be saved and that God would move in powerful ways among the people to actually, to actually change things in the hearts of men and women. And I realized I didn't really pray very much for those. This is just a fairly routine Sunday, just doing what we always do. And I'll never forget one of the, the requests that were made that came home to my heart, almost like an arrow to my heart. I was so stung by it and so convicted by it. Uh, one of the men prayed, uh, Lord, we would not dishonor you with low expectations for what you can do in our midst. And I've tried to pray that ever since. Lord, I don't want to dishonor you with low expectations for what you're able to do in my life, my marriage, the life of my family, the life of our church. We will not dishonor God with low expectations for what He can accomplish. So I want to encourage you, church, let's pray big prayers. Let's ask God that He'll open closed countries. Away with the attitude that says, you know what, yeah, we hope the gospel will go to North Korea, but until you know, that dictatorship is overthrown, probably won't happen. So let's direct our efforts elsewhere. No, let's pray big prayers. God can move and open countries for the gospel. He can do great things. He can move nations. He can move kings. He can move governments. Let's pray for the progress of the gospel in the midst of persecution. When everything looks dark... When everything looks gloomy, when it looks like our requests are not going to be answered, let's ask God to move because He's the God of Ephesians 3.20. He's the God who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Let's pray in our own lives for the ability to overcome our sin. You all know that sort of hopelessness, right? I've always struggled with this thing. I've always been a bitter... Bitterness has always been hard for me. And my, my, my father was bitter and his grandfather before him, he, he was bitter as well. I'll just always struggle with this. I've always been someone who's, who's, who's been consumed by sort of sinful anxiety, and that's just my, my besetting sin, and, and I've, I've had that for now 20 years in the faith, and I'll never overcome that. But listen, your God is the God of Ephesians 3.20, and you can overcome that sin with God's help, and you can have victory over sin that has dogged you for 20 and 30 and 40 years, because our God is the God of Ephesians 3.20. He can do far more abundantly than what you ask or think. He can overcome um, your genetic background. He can overcome uh, 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 you know, what has gone through your family for generations. He's the God who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Let's pray for the salvation of someone far from God. You've got someone in your life you've been praying for for years, you haven't seen them converted. Continue to pray. Don't give up. Recognize that God can do abundantly above all you ask or think. I've often told this story, especially over the last few months, uh, that Jenna and I were praying for her grandmother, uh, who was on her deathbed whole life long, about 80 years or so, uh, 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 with sort of vitriolic antagonism toward the Christian faith. Just hated God. We found out she had cancer, and we're praying, looking gloomy, looking like she's going to die. We prayed, we prayed. And then one day we got a call that she was converted. Mm. And she was saying all these things she never said before, and she's actually witnessing to her unconverted family and all this sort of stuff. And again, I felt rebuked. Because because I vocalized prayers about our grandmother, 
And I just felt like I had no faith that God would actually work. She was so far from God. Who am I kidding? Grandma's going to be sick. Grandma's going to be saved? No way. No way. I, I just could not see that actually happening. I, I prayed. I mean, I, that's what you're supposed to do, right? But I realized my pr- I felt so rebuked, sweetly rebuked. I mean, God answered my prayer, not in accordance with my faith, and did abundantly above all that I asked or thought. And I was really resolved from that time on to pray with greater faith that even in the fourth quarter, even in the final two minutes, God can work. God could change a heart. We should pray for revival. Revival in our country. Revival in Winston-Salem. Revival in this community. We should pray for the repairing of relationships that are currently marked by tension. We should pray that God would remove division and disunity in His church, both here and around the world. But I do feel a need to say this. We should notice in our text that we're not only to bring big prayers in the place of small prayers... God can answer small requests and large requests. God doesn't say, look, stop bothering me with petty little things. Bring to me really big stuff. No, we're told to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And so pray that God would help. You know, my, my knee's been sore lately. Lord, it's bothering me. Remove that pain. Lord, I can't find the car keys. Would you please help me find the car? He wants to hear those requests. He's a big enough God to handle the small things. Help me to get an A on my test. I really want to get this promotion. I pray that the check engine light will prove to not be that big of a deal. Pray those prayers. But also pray for the big things. Pray about the check engine light. And pray that the gospel will go to the nations. Big requests, small requests, in confidence that God can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. But let's stop throwing him softies, setting the bar low, and bringing our paltry expectations to prayer meetings and to small groups and to our quiet time. Let's expect that God can do big things because He is so big. He's so strong. He's so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. John Newton wrote in one of his famous hymns, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And there's a third thing I want you to see under this power that the Lord possesses. He says in verse 20 that, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And then there's this phrase, according to the power at work within us. Very briefly, I just want to say this. Don't make any mistake. That power does not originate with you. It's not talking about your power. That's power given you by God, supplied you by God. That power is God's power. It's a power that's at work within us. Paul has prayed this already a couple of times in the book of Ephesians, that God would supply power to his people. Brother, sister, there is power at work within you. There's power in you to overcome sin, to love God's people, to communicate the gospel, to minister in the body of Christ. There's power at work within you, but it's not your own. It didn't originate from your own resources. God is the one who supplies power. And so in this prayer, Paul is really uh, praying that God would supply power to his people. And that through that power that's at work within us, he would accomplish those things that are far more abundant than all that we ask or think. And so, if you find yourself being productive for the Lord, bearing fruit for the Lord, maybe you, you're evangelizing and you see souls converted, that wasn't your doing. That was the power at work within you. You lead a ministry in the church and it's growing and you know, we have a women's Bible study here, women are gathering and, and maybe it expands to 20, 30, that wasn't your doing. 
but it was the result of God's power at work within you. If we're able to build a relationship with Mount Tabor High School that yields real, lasting, spiritual fruit for the kingdom, that will only be a result of God's power at work within us. Well, now, secondly, we've seen the power of God in our text. Secondly, now, I want us to see, number two, the glory of God. We've seen the power of God. Now, secondly, the glory of God. Please look at verse 21. Paul now completes the doxology. Now, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This sentence is a a fitting conclusion to chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but the book of Ephesians can really be broken down into two sections. Chapter 1 through 3, which is largely theological material that we've been considering together. Chapters 4 through 6, which is about how to walk practically as a child of God, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we finished the first major section of the book of Ephesians. We're going to take a break from this series for about a month and then come back and pick up chapter 4 beginning in the month of November. But I do think in verse 21 we have sort of the concluding words of all that the Apostle Paul has been saying so far in the book of Ephesians. I think he's saying that everything that's gone before in chapters 1 through 3, all this work about Individual sinners being reconciled to God, dead men and women raised alive in Christ, the church being formed supernaturally by the blood of the Lord Jesus, and now this community made up of Jews and Gentiles, one in Christ, living to the glory. It's all to be to the glory of God. Glory is given to God in our text we see in two spheres. First of all, we see there's to be glory in the church. Glory in the church. Now, how is there glory in the church? How does glory go to God in the church? Well, in the book of Ephesians, it's at least through three ways. First of all, it's through the salvation of sinners. It's through individual men and women being saved by grace. Those who were formerly at enmity with God, enemies of God, now made worshipers of Almighty God. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 14 says this, In Him we have obtained, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Why are men and women converted? Well, it's not just so that they could be eternally happy. It's so that Christ could be eternally glorified. Glory in the church. Glory in men and women transformed and changed by the grace of God and brought in relationship with the Lord Jesus. But secondly, in the book of Ephesians, we see that glory goes to God through the practice of good works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a lot of people are familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And we always leave off verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The word is poema, masterpiece. We're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we should walk in them. There's a display happening in the life of a believer. A display of the glory of God. Individual sinners reconciled to Christ, made alive in Christ through the grace of God, are to live in good works and walk in good works. And that walking in good works is to be a display 
the power of God. It's to be his masterpiece. Believers walking in good works. And then also we've seen over the last few weeks that God is glorified through the unity of his body. Uh, The church is to be this manifold display of the the wisdom of God. And it's to be to the nations. It's to be to the spiritual powers. In the church, God is to get glory. So what is the end? What is the goal? What is the purpose of all this? What is the purpose of what's going on upstairs? What's the purpose of churches that have gathered for generations all around the world? What's the point? What is that all about? It's about the glory of God. Why does Emmanuel Church exist? There's many ways we could articulate our mission. But at the bare minimum, it is for the glory of God. Glory to God in the church. The end game in the church is the glory of God. But then secondly, Paul says there's glory in Christ Jesus. That's the second sphere in our text. Everything that is in Christ is to be to the glory of God. Everything that is happening through union with Christ is to be to the glory of God. God is reconciling all things in Christ. Sinners are saved by being united to Christ. The people of God are reconciled to one another by being united to Christ. All that is in Christ, Christ's people, Christ's church, it's all to be to the glory of God. All that is in Christ Jesus is to be to the glory of God. I love the way Colossians 1, 15 through 20 in describing the preeminence of God puts it. He is, Christ is, the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now in closing, I'd like to share with us three points of application. I'll be very brief here, and then we'll come to partake of the table together. Three points of application. First of all, because we worship the God of superabundance, because He's able to do abundantly above all we ask or think, first of all, we should pray often. We should pray often. We as individuals, we as a church, we should pray often. You have things you want to see happen in your life, in your situation, in your family. We certainly have things we want to see done in the church. We need to pray often. And we've concluded that it's not enough that we only gather as a church on Sunday mornings and and pray for 10 or 15 minutes in our services. It's not enough that we only gather in homes uh, to share 20 to 30 minutes at the end of our small groups to pray together. We've now purposed to pray more because we recognize our needs are great. We recognize the work of the gospel needs to go forward in power. We recognize the fields are ripe unto harvest. And if we're going to be fruitful as a church, we're going to need God to work by His power. And that's why we purpose to continue in the habit of corporate prayer. We'll begin meeting once a month. It's possible down the road we'll even meet more than that. But the reason we want to gather to pray often is because we do worship the God of Ephesians 3.20. The God who can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Secondly... We should pray expectantly. Expectantly. 
We come to one who is able to do abundantly above all we ask or think. We come to one who can do something for us. We come to one who can move in his church. One who can move in the hearts of his people. God is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And now thirdly, brothers and sisters, the success of the church and the success of our individual lives are measured by the glory we bring to God. Success of this church, the success of your life is measured by the glory you bring that we bring to God. The reason we exist is to bring glory to God in the church, bring glory to God in Christ Jesus, to bring glory to God in our lives. The ultimate end of the Christian life, the ultimate end of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the glory of God. God's plan for you is not that you only live your best life now. God's great object in you and in the church is the glory of the risen Christ. Your great object in the church and in your life must be the glory of God. And this changes the way we look at our lives, doesn't it? Changes the way we look at our money. Changes the way we look at our time. Changes the way we look at church and what our involvement in church is going to be. The glory of God is our great object. May God move upon us to give glory to God in our lives and in the church. There's one question I have to ask in closing. Does your life, does your life bring glory to God? If you're a believer, you can answer, yes, it does. With God's help, my life is bringing glory to God. I praise God. I worship God. I'm killing my sin to the glory of God. But you who don't know the Lord, I ask you that question. Does your life bring glory to God? You are made to give glory to God. You were made to bring glory to the creator of the universe. You were made to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your life bringing glory to God? Is your life bringing glory to self? Is your life uh, bringing maybe uh, temporal happiness? Is it bringing for you uh, joy in yourself and in your sin? Or are you bringing glory to God? You were made to bring glory to God. And you can through the Lord Jesus Christ by believing on Him and repentance and faith and being united to the Lord Jesus. And then you in the church and in Christ Jesus can bring glory to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us as a church to commit ourselves to prayer. We thank you that you are the the God of Ephesians 3.20 who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We repent of our low expectations for what you can do in our lives and in our church. We pray that you would help us to pray often and to pray with expectation and to pray with faith because you are the God of abundant ability to work in the lives and hearts of your people and in your church. We pray that the testimony of our lives, the testimony of our church would be that we have lived to the glory of God And that praise has come to the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of our lives and the result of our church. And we pray that each one here would give the glory that is due to you, Father, uh, through believing on the gospel and being united to the Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, as we continue to sing and as we observe the Lord's table, would you please come and meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.